Welcome to Buff Stampede Radio. Boy, should I always enjoy having the Milo room? Of course, it's Adam Munster But you can't put that kind of pressure on your team. And they were so sick of hearing Dan, reading Dan Hoffman's quotes, listening to Dan Hoffman's audio. And we've got a job to do. I had to go out there every day and present you know, the material. You can't just cover spring ball without with, with ignoring everything the head coach says. Hello and welcome into Buff Stampede Radio. I'm your host. Yes, you heard that right. I am your host, Ryan Konigsberg. And we are coming to you live from the Blake Street Tavern. Well, I guess we're not coming to you live. But we're coming to you on less of a tape delay than the Olympics and less pink eye than the Olympics. How long did it take you to think of that? <laughs> that was right off the top of my head. On my right, we have... The basketball recruiting guru. We got uh, the self-proclaimed gourmet chef. The guy who's known to say he's going to turn up only to fall asleep on the couch five minutes later. That's right. Assistant editor, William Whalen. And to my left, we have everyone's favorite fan correspondent, everyone's favorite bartender. He's known to turn around and stare at Will Whalen every time Xavier Talton gets a bucket. And he thinks that Jennifer Lawrence is only an 8 out of 10. Wow. Tyler Ziskin, folks. <laughs> wow. Let's give it an applause for everybody involved right now. This is great. So, that's enough talk about us. We're going to talk basketball today. Are we? we got a lot to talk about. The last time we, uh, the last time we did one of these basketball shows, the, it was a doomy, gloomy, cold Colorado day. They were coming off a, a horrible performance on the road. Um, since then, a 79-75 over, 75 win over Utah in overtime, a 68-63 over win over Washington State, and a 91-65 convincing win over the Washington Huskies. Guys, just off the bat, first impressions of those three games uh, since the last show we had. Well, as the self-proclaimed basketball guru, um, and no, I, I proclaimed you the, the basketball guru. Oh, thank you. Self, self-proclaimed chef. Yes, 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 that would be me. Um, <laughs> I'm going to cook up a cauldron of catchy catchphrases today. Okay. Um, the, the, this three-game three <laughs> three homestand needs to be prefaced by saying this. The three teams they played were not very good. Utah is okay. Washington has had spurts of playing really good basketball. They have. Washington State is terrible. This was not play, beating Cal, Stanford, and Arizona State. This was not beating Oregon, Cal, and Arizona State. This was beating three of the bottom-tier teams of the Pac-12. Yes, now that we've gotten that out of the way, Colorado played some of their better basketball over this homestead. <laughs> Specifically when you look at the fact that they played without Spencer Dinwiddie. And they won in three different ways. One, they come down, come back from down double digits against Utah in the second half. They were down 12 just a few minutes in. They go into halftime uh, with Utah going on a 5-0 run to extend to, I think, a 7-point halftime lead. Then you And they are able to come back and win that game. Then against Washington State, you really played poorly offensively for much of the night, but 
you're able to hold off a team that hits some ridiculous shots as the second half goes on. You played some of your better defense that you played recently against them and get the win. And then against Washington, you kind of put everything together. Your defense was stout, holding them to, what, 38 39% shooting from the field. So I was very impressed with their defense. Offensively, they were clicking on all cylinders, scoring 91 points, hitting shots from beyond the arc, hitting their free throws, co converting on the inside, getting out on the break. They kind of put it all together against Washington. So overall, three much-needed wins for this team. And in three different fashions that I think if you're a Buffs fan, you can look at and gain a little bit of confidence from each stuff. Yeah, I think for me, the difference is uh, individually, none of the three performances like really wowed you. I can't believe they won that game. You know, those are, those are teams that they should beat at home, regardless of whether or not Spencer Dinwiddie's around. But I think the collection of them um, prior to this stretch, the, the team as it is now, I don't think anybody was confident that they could play well enough to win three straight games, regardless of the fact that it was at home. So I think it was important from that perspective. I, I think they found out a little bit about themselves in that Utah game. They really turned up the pressure defensively in the second half, really got out on the break and did a good job of pushing the tempo. Um, I think they forgot that that's what this team was because Spencer's no longer there. But that's how the team is built. We don't, we don't have a team that is full of guys that can play effectively in a half-court offense. That's not what we are, even without Spencer. You know, they, they, they get the job done on the break. They get the job done playing, playing pressure defense, creating turnovers, and finding, um, finding themselves in space out on the, out on the perimeter, um, driving to the hoop. So I, I think it was a very important three-game stretch because any of those games, if they're losses, we're not in the NCAA tournament picture today. Yeah. Um, yep. And, you know, so at the end of the year, is anyone going to say those are three losses that the resume um, is, is, is pride upon? And the answer is no, but they're important because they keep us on the right side of the bubble. And really, we're now sitting at 4-4 four four since Spencer got injured, which I think is probably exceeding a lot of the na national analyst expectations based on um, some of the things that were said right, you know, right as they got um right as they got past the Denwood injury in the first next couple of games. People have really counted them out. And, yes, the schedule has been friendly, um, giving them some opportunities to find themselves a little bit, and now we're going to get into the really difficult portion of the schedule. But they've done a nice job rebounding, um, and now we're going to see if they, have, if they have what it takes to take the next step and get to the team. <coughs> yeah. The way I look at it is uh, our good friend Goose on Twitter, as soon as the, the Spencer Denwitty injury happened, he said, this, 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 the season for this new team starts against Utah. So, to me, for this team, now that they've settled in, they're 3-0 and with, with knowing how that team is going to work. And I think that, that's something that they can build off of. Moving on to, to where they stand now, just laying this out. They're 18-6 and overall, 7-4 and in the Pac-12, currently tied for third with Arizona State. Uh, and basically a consensus 10 seed in most of the bracketology pieces that come out. So, so moving on to, to that tournament talk, um, you got to look at the next, the last seven games, closing time, I believe, as Tyler Ziskin likes to call it. Um, in those seven games, they play the, the top six teams in the conference, not named Colorado, and in the next four, they play the top three. 
So it, by any stretch, this is not a, an easy closing segment for the by Buffaloes. No means, by no and means. On top of it, five of those seven games are on the road. And on top of that, they haven't beat a team with a winning record in conference yet. So not to bring down the mood or anything, but Tyler, what do these... What is the what do they have to do in these seven games uh, to get into the tournament in your in your yeah, system? Yeah, I, th- I think the casual fan always loses sight of the fact that you're not winning every conference game, and, and you look at this seven game stretch and what Colorado needs to do to get into the tournament. It's just, it sounds odd to say, but three and four is a very good result for them. Very. Good. Um, you're, you're what that basically assuming just for a scenario's sake, we'll say that we get Arizona State at home and we don't get Arizona. That means you have two road victories. Um, who they come from, you don't know. Obviously, you, one of them has to be USC. Losing to USC is not really an option for this team if they want to make the tournament. Um, and, and they have four other games between UCLA and Utah and Stanford and Cal to win a game on the road if they're going to get to that three and four. Um, obviously, you look at Utah as probably the most likely. just because They're a talented team, but they found I feel like they've found ways to lose games yeah, down the stretch. So, um, you know, from a, from, a rank, from a talent and from a standings perspective, that's the lowest-ranked team that you're going to find on the remaining schedule um, outside of USC. Um, two and five depends, obviously, on who you win. Um, Arizona State and USC are kind of the two that you're going to bullet point for sure. Um, that's going to... It doesn't eliminate us, I don't think, but it, we're going to be at the mercy of the committee. I think I think we're a we're we're going to be buoyed by the fact that the Pac-12 is considered to be a very good basketball league right now by the committee, by the you know by the numbers. Pretty much any way you look at it, the Pac-12 is looked at as probably getting six teams into the tournament, um, and we can rest our case on that a little bit and say that if we can finish among those top six teams, uh, we're going to have a shot. The problem is, of course, that would that makes you six and nine without Spencer, um, and the committee is fully well, well within its right to say to judge us based solely on that. And it's very rare for a team to get in with a conference record similar to that. Obviously, it, it would be more like eight and ten, you know, or seven and eleven when you're looking at a full conference slate. Um, and while our RPI is very good, that can also be attributed to a lot of the things that Spencer's done this year. So. We're probably not going to get the credit for that either. Um, so to me, three and four locks us in. Um, in my eyes, we're not going to be a great seed, but we're going to get in at three and four. Two and five, I would say the chances are less than 50% to get you in there. Um, and it'll obviously depend on how the bubble teams perform. There's quite a few games left, so there's a lot of fluidity to this. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we need some help. But um, we're, we're coming together at the right time, and I think we've given ourselves an opportunity to play our way into the dance, which is all you can really ask for with a team that's injured. Yeah, I would agree. Three and four, you got to feel comfortable because uh, I think if you're three and four, no matter how you slice it, if you go three and four, no matter how you divvy up the wins and losses, you're coming out pretty far ahead. Because say you lose to USC, say you lose to UCLA. So then you have to get three wins out of five games where you play Arizona State, Arizona, Cal, Stanford, and Utah. Take out Utah, and you're still looking for three wins out of, you know, four of the top six teams in the conference. You're going to have two. Four wins, and and, and three wins against tournament teams. Yes, two top 50 wins guaranteed. So, no matter how you slice it, even if 
even if you say you beat USC and you beat Arizona State at home, then you're still getting one out of Arizona, Cal, Stanford, Utah. And even if it's at Utah, it's a road win over over a team that you know is has a chance to finish top 100 RPI. They have a chance to finish top 100 RPI. Uh, you know, Utah, they found ways to lose, so if they start finding ways to win, they can flip things around in a hurry for them. You know, um, so three and four, you're in, bottom line. Yeah, just, uh, and, just and, and you avoid a terrible loss in the first, depending on your matchups in the back to tournament, but still, right. you feel comfortable. Yeah, so obviously they look at the RPI from the committee, but Ken Palm is kind of, you know, every single year gaining momentum. And yeah. Utah is actually ranked ahead of us on yeah. Ken Palm right now, in the low 40s. So they. There are definitely metrics that view that team as very, very quality. So yeah. that, that at Utah win would be a very solid win for Colorado. And then you go two and five. I think you really start sweating. I don't. I don't know that it disqualifies you, but as you said, your chances got to go below fifty percent because if you go two and five, you're assuming your wins are probably USC on the road and either at Utah or Arizona State at home. Arizona State at home would be a good win. They're a tournament team. You know, at Utah would be a road win over a team, as you said, that has some metrics behind them and has a chance to kind of turn things around in their season. They certainly have opportunities, just like Colorado, to pick up some good wins. And then I think Colorado would need to do nothing to hurt themselves in the Pac-12 tournament. If you do that, I think you're a, you might be okay. I think it depends on how the bubble shapes up, how conference tournaments look, and all that. So that's obviously going to be interesting. One and four, and you're done. You mean one and six? Uh, you finish one and four. One and six, yes. One and six. I don't know where I got the four from. <laughs> I don't even know. Anyways, you go one and six and you're done because even if you beat Arizona, if your one win is Arizona, not only are you trending down in the committee's eyes in your last ten-ish games, you know, because you know, then you throw in a game in the Pac-12 tournament, whatever. Um, but even if you beat Arizona, you have lost to USC, who is terrible. That is a bad loss. You have lost at home to Arizona State. But you also lost at Utah. And you've also obviously gotten swept on the road at the Bay Area schools. The win over Arizona will give you a little bit of juice, but not enough to overcome the other stuff. So... Honestly, this is this is what I say for this team. If you're gonna use lose to USC, you gotta beat UCLA. Yep. If you're gonna lose at Utah, you gotta, in my opinion, you gotta take care of business against Arizona State and find a way to win one out of three against Stanford, Cal, and Arizona, which is not beyond this team's reach to win one out of those three games. Cal has proven to be very tough at home. Yeah. Arizona's going to be tough no matter where you play them. Yes. Stanford doesn't have that home court advantage that other teams have. And since you're in the Bay Area, it, the Bay Area trip, and Boyle has said this, is probably the easiest trip, physical trip that you take. Because you stay in the same hotel the entire time. You're driving a few miles each way, and you're not dealing with a letdown game against a USC team and a really talented, really talented school in UCLA. 
you're playing two solid teams, and one of them isn't that great of a home court advantage. So I, I, it's not out of the realm of possibility to think they can win one of those three games I just mentioned. Yeah, I'll, the, the whole Arizona talk, I think, can be proved simply by looking at ground. <coughs> They've lost four of their five last games, the one win being Arizona. Yeah. And they're still not getting talked about at all because they've completely fallen down the Pac-12 standings back to you know average along with everybody else that's outside of the top two right now. And, yeah, that's not good enough. Yeah. And you, it doesn't matter if you get one win. You got It's got to be sustained success. You talked about Spencer Dinwiddie, and – the Spencer Dinwiddie effect on this whole thing is, in my opinion, starting to disappear. Not just because this team is starting to get games under the belt without him, but their resume with Spencer Dinwiddie is losing luster. Baylor has tanked. Baylor may not make the NCAA tournament. We were thinking Baylor, before this season, we were probably looking at Baylor as anywhere from a 4 to an 8 seed. You know, they're, depending on how their yeah, season played they're out. They're a top 10 team at one point. Yeah, I would have said even my, my floor on them would have been six or seven. I, I, I liked okay. Baylor enough in a tough league to be right. a pretty highly seeded team. And now they are falling out of some yeah. mock yeah, they're, they're I mean, oh, they, yeah. they look like an NAT team to the fullest right yeah. now. And so that loss. Are you surprised with who their coach is? No, not at all. Not one good. Bit. So that loss is obviously losing some of its luster. Another loss is a little bit more confusing. The Oklahoma State loss, obviously when Cobbins went out, their power forward, they were going to be looked at differently. When they played Colorado, they were at full strength. But still, they didn't have enough games under their belt for the committee to look at that and definitively say, with Cobbins, they, the spiral that team has gone down lately wouldn't happen. There's not enough games to really say that definitively. And so that loss has lost some of its luster. Now, obviously, the wins for Colorado is where its strength was going to be. In terms of, you didn't have the bad losses, which was, you know, obviously, before all of this stuff has happened, looked at as a quality part of their resume. Kansas will always be a really signature win for this team, no matter what. And, and I think the committee will will would have still looked at that, you know, no matter what, without Dinwood. They're going to get some credit for that. But teams like Harvard have, I mean, losing to Yale for Harvard was unacceptable. Yeah, that's, I mean, they're, they're, they're really in danger of being out of the tournament, too. They're a 13 in both brackets. I mean, if they don't... They've got to win the regular season. They're not getting in as an at-large. Exactly. So they've got to win that automatic bid. Oregon was another team that we were saying was going to be a good win all year. That's not a good win. It's not. It's a bad... It's not a bad win, but it's a... Just a win. A pedestrian win. It's a win. win. Colorado doesn't yet have an away win, a win on the road that you can point to. I talked to Boyle about that this morning, and he said... Well, you know, it's the same as every February. This year is not unique because we don't have guys. You have to win away from home in February. And if you can't do it, it's going to hurt you comes tournament time. Last year, one of the biggest wins of the year for this team was at Stanford because it was ugly. But they got it done. They got it done, and that was so vital for that team. They've got to find a way to do that this year, especially without Spencer Dinwiddie, because some of the benefit of the doubt that they had with him is gone with him, and even without him, some of the benefit of the doubt they were getting based on their resume is starting to lose its luster. Not to mention they haven't won on a neutral court either. <laughs> no, they haven't. So, to me, 
two and five doesn't get it done. Um, I don't think six and nine without Spencer Dinwiddie. And the big thing to me is the record. Most likely, if you say the wins are over ASU and USC, they're going to be something like one in seven against the top half of the Pac-12. And to me, that's just that's something that the, re- the the committee just looks at. And if you're a bubble team, they just say, well, they they couldn't beat good teams without Spencer Dinwiddie. How are they going to beat a team that's quality enough to be in our tournament? So to me, two and five doesn't get it done. Three and four though does get it done, barring. Um, a, a, a catastrophic loss in the first round of the, of the Pac-12 tournament. Um, moving on to Mr. Ziskin's favorite topic, rotations. Uh, last time we sat down here, we were, there was a lot of talk about what Tad Boyle needed to do yeah. to, make, to make some changes, and some changes had to be made. So, first of all, he takes Xavier Talton, after the Utah game, who kind of busts out, and it similarly, Jaron Hopkins has a bad game, and he puts him in the starting lineup. Guys, talk about that change. Um, did it work? And is there anything else that needs to be done here? Yeah, I, I, I have to say, when we talked last time about this, one of my main points was that the risk, the kind of damage that you risk doing by moving Jerron off the ball, Jerron Hopkins off the ball, is that you potentially set him up for delayed development for the future. Now, Tad Boyle obviously takes the approach that, you know, I, I tried to advocate a little bit for it, and Tyler, you really hammered on that. You have to win now. You have to do what you can now. Um, and it is clear that Jerron Hopkins is better in a reserved ball handling mode and put into more lineups where he doesn't have to be the ball handler, with Ski on the floor, with Talton on the floor. He's better in those lineups. There's no question about that now. You know, I, I don't think so at all. And I think the most important part of all this, and I asked Boyle about it after last game, was bringing Talton into the starting lineup didn't shake Jerron Hopkins' mental stability. In fact, it solidified it. Because Jerron is... Jerron's an emotional kid. He's a wild kid on the court. You know, he, he's not the yeller, but he plays emotionally. You know, and he plays a little bit wild at times. And when his workload was reduced, and I say workload, workload doesn't necessarily pertain to playing time. But when you stripped him of some responsibilities that he had to endure, like setting up the offense, making good decisions, making plays for his teammates, et cetera, et cetera, when you stripped him of that necessity and that responsibility, I think he has approached the game of, I'm going to just find little ways to affect the game. Now, instead of trying to beat the guy, I'm going to affect the game. And yet, and, and the other night against Washington was the culmination of that with 10 rebounds. He obviously has the highlight dunk that everybody loved. I get it. But the best part of that game, the fact that he got his hand on loose balls, he, caused, he didn't get a whole lot of steals, but... He knocked the ball away from Andrew Andrews at least four times. Andrew collected it, but it takes the other team out of rhythm. He grabs defensive rebounds, nine of them. Those are the kind of ways that Jerron obviously is now trying to starting to settle himself into. My question. So there's, there's no question that it's worked. Ted Boyle's adjustment that aligns more on what Tyler was talking about last time has indeed worked. But the question going forward is... Does the staff collectively 
whether they tell Jerron Hopkins this or not, do they collectively decide, okay, Jerron, you are now a wing. You are not a point guard anymore. You know, we have Xavier Tallman. He's kind of evolved into that role. Askia Booker has started to take on much more point guard roles since Spencer Dinwiddie went out. We have Dom Collier, a four-star point guard, coming in next year. Jerron, you are a wing. You are going to be our 2-3 hybrid. You know, we can, you can, he can defend shooting guards. He can defend small forwards. Offensively, he's a slasher. It'll be interesting, the decision, to see if they make that. Because, in my opinion... We're going to see it through their actions over these last, this, this final stretch. These last seven regular season games, couple tor- back to tournament games, NCAA tournament or NIT. We're going to see how it plays out. And it's really interesting because this is one of the biggest adjustment decisions they've ever had at Colorado. Their first year, there wasn't a lot of adjustment to be made. Roles were very clearly defined. Andre Robertson was never really asked to do more one year than he was the other. He's always, find your way in the offense when it comes, play defense, and rebound. Spencer Dinwiddie, <coughs> I don't think he was necessarily asked to do things. He just took it upon himself because that's who he is. Askia Booker has been asked by this staff to play the way he is now. And it's coming along. So it's so when you look at all of a sudden this kid is a freshman and could be in this program for three and a half more years, how is that transformation going to happen how is this decision-making from the coaching staff going to affect him, his confidence, his play, and ultimately the team? So this is less of a declaration about what they're doing going forward and more of a question because I, I'm fascinated to see what happens with John Hobbins. He is the single most interesting storyline on this team going forward for me. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll approach it the same way as you did. Okay. Um, and simply put... The offense is better with Xavier Talton in yep. the starting in the starting lineup. I mean, you can see it even when he's coming off the bench in later. It's not even just the start of the game. The, the offense is much more fluid. He's comfortable with the ball on the perimeter. He's comfortable running the offense. And with him and the ski next to each other, you have two ball handlers that can re- create for other people on the floor. Um, to me, I, I talked about this originally, and when you were talking about instructing Jaron's development potentially. What I said was it, it allows him to focus on what he can do. And I think you've seen that in the past three games. He's really been Absolutely. able to – you've seen his defensive potential really show up. He's been great defensively the past couple games specifically um, because he's not asked to do all this stuff on offense. He's, you know, he doesn't have to try to figure out a way to control the offense and do things he's not good at. And it's, re- it's worked out nicely for him. I mean, you, you, you don't see him sulking on the court. He's been, he's been confident. He goes into the game. He slashes. He's been able to rebound. He's doing the things that he can do, and to me, that you know, your confidence level is high when you do the things that you can do. So, it, it, to me, it, it hasn't maybe stunted his growth. Rather than this is what I can do, this is how I can help this team, and that's how it can go standing uh, going forward. I, I think the the other piece that has really made this work is Iskia. If Iskia if Iskia doesn't doesn't take to this new role well, and he's forcing Xavier to be the the full time point guard, this doesn't work out. No. So the fact that he has really done. I mean, this is what we knew he needed to do, but we were not sure he could do it. And he has with yeah, flying colors. Yeah, he's, he has been incredible to me. Um, even, even in games where he hasn't shot the ball well on the road, he's doing exactly what this team needs him to do. He's been one of the better players in the conference over the last Oh, absolutely, years. yeah. No doubt about it, uh, to me. I mean, he's he 
I said I don't know if they've did the, done the awards yet, but he, him and Jordan Bachinski will be. Bachinski was player of the week. Yeah, he won and, it. And Eskia yeah. couldn't be more than worse than seven. Yeah, he was. He's right there as well. And I, I think going forward, Jaron can continue to sit in this role. Um, I, I 100% agree with you that it'll be interesting to see what happens to him in the future. I think the one thing they can continue to do with him is those minutes that are going to the third point guard spot to Eli right now. Those can go to Jaron. You have a lineup in the game where you're not you're not expected to really extend the lead. He can go in. You're most of the time, Ted. While I don't like his rotation, sometimes he does it a lot of the time against other teams' bench as well. So he's, there's a little bit less pressure on him. He can get a little bit of experience there, and it's not enough to the point where he's, he's turning the ball over four or five times a game. So I think I think that's where you can still maybe um, slowly bring him along in that regard. Yep, I think you guys covered that one pretty well. Uh, real quick, do you think that? Uh, West Gordon goes down this week. He, he slips on the ice, um, sprains his ankle. Real quick, do you, do you guys like Dustin Thomas stepping in the starting line for him? Are, are you? I you know there's a lot there's a lot of people who argue that XJ is better at the four than the three. And while I I see their argument, the reality is when Dustin Thomas is in the game, Dustin Thomas is the four, yeah. and XJ is still the three. I mean, some people aren't getting that, and I like the move because. Dustin is very comfortable on the perimeter. Uh, he's not a turnover guy on the perimeter. If the other team has a little bit more perimeter-oriented four guy, Dustin can guard that, but so can Wes. You know, if Wes is back, I think you have to start him because here's the biggest thing, and, and I'll keep it brief, and it's this. You could tell that Wesley Gordon was out of yesterday's game because Washington shot more layups than any team has on CU maybe all year. Washington shot uncontested layups for a lot of the game. Even their big guy on Josh was shooting layups. He was missing them. He was shooting layups. Those shots, some of those perimeter uh, penetrations that they had, don't happen when Wesley Gordon is in the game because he's one of the elite shot blockers in this conference. And so I think that's why offensively, I can see how somebody would prefer Thomas. You can shoot the three. So can Wes. And Wes plays defense. Dustin can't play defense like Wes. Yeah, I mean, if Wes Gordon's healthy, he's starting over Dustin Thomas. There's, I, don't, I don't think you, yeah. you... You're trying to shake... You're doing too much if, if you start making that change. Yeah. Wes is better than him right now. I think the thing with Dustin is he... Not only was Washington shooting layups, they probably had five and ones in that game. And I bet three of them were fouls on yeah. Dustin Thomas. The, the one thing with me is his foul trouble issues are bad. There's no doubt about that. But... If I'm Tad in practice, I'm finding a dummy and telling Dustin Thomas to tackle it every time he fouls someone. <laughs> because every foul is soft. You can't do that at the college level. People are going to finish. And that's and that's what's really hurt his development to me is he can't stay on the court long enough yep. to get comfortable on the offensive end of the floor because he's touch-fouling everyone. It's a, most of the time you like you feel bad. Sometimes Avery Tallman gets some calls because he's aggressive um, that, that you don't really like so much. The Dustin, Dustin Thomas, I don't, I don't know that I've – complained about a foul call on him all year. He fouls, and he's got to figure out a way. You know, it's okay to let somebody get a layup if, he, if you're beat. You know, like, he's, he's getting himself in a position where he's fouling someone that he has no chance it's to affect pick the up shot. Ball. It's pick yeah. up Yeah, he's, he's not going to affect the shot. There's no chance. So sometimes <laughs> you just got to let it go. Yeah. And and, and for me, Wes, um, he, 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 he evens it out because especially now with Xavier starting, 
we, we're lacking a little bit offensively um, when, we, when, we, when we go to the bench. Um, and, and Dustin, you can see he's starting to get his comfortable. Uh, he's a lot more comfortable on the perimeter. He's pulling the trigger. Yeah, yeah. And you, both those misses last game, the right on. He hit the back of the rim. That's what. That's the type of shot you want to make. You want to see someone miss if that makes any sense. Yes. Yeah. I mean, like you don't want the ball careening twelve feet off the right of the rim. You know, you don't want it to look real short or hesitant. He's, he's shooting the ball, and that's what you want to see. And I think now with West coming back. We have defined roles for every single person who plays significant minutes on this team. And I think that makes it easier going forward for these young guys to know exactly what they're asked to do on the court. Yep. All right. <clears throat> Last thing here on the, uh, the production plan is the Buffs are going back to Cali. Um, this two-game road trip coming up, I know we've kind of hashed it out a little bit so far. I want to know from each of you one key to beating UCLA on Thursday night. The one key to beating UCLA is rebounding. It, last game, after the game, Dad Boyle said, Jordan Adams beasted us. He was a beast. He had something like seven offensive rebounds. And that was the difference in the game. They created extra opportunities, got CU in foul trouble, and those stops, you know, CU forced them into bad shots, those stops could have allowed CU to get on the break, and it didn't. If, if you can rebound on both ends against UCLA... Because UCLA will play that soft, kind of crappy zone a lot of times. And even in their man, CU has the athletes to keep up on the boards. If they can do that, they can turn it into a little bit more of a grinder-type game, which is what they need. Because CU will not beat UCLA if this turns into a track meet. Because they, the, they don't have the horses that UCLA has in the open court. Yeah, I think if we're making the assumption that West plays, which hopefully he UCLA was one of the, his worst games of his career last time around. He, he just wasn't getting it done defensively on the glass. We're going to need him, assuming he plays. Um, the, the other thing for me is Askia Booker has been tremendous in all, every other facet of the game in the last road trips. He's got to be able to put the ball in the bucket, though. We need him as a scorer. You know, he's, he's capable of getting other people involved, but we don't have enough scoring outside of him to really compete on the road against a team with the quality of talent at UCLA. Yep, on, on my uh, sheet here, I wrote simply ski, ski, ski. But it it's, comes down, if this team at this point goes as he goes, and if he goes out there and he starts like 0 for 4, or 1 for 6, which he you know, does from time to time, it's going to get real hard for, for the Buffaloes to you know, keep up with uh, the Bruins offensively. Um, the other side of it, what if they get swept, is that... Is that doom? Is that uh, is that game over for the Buffs? No, I don't think it is because you still have two really great opportunities in Boulder, in a place where this team is 15 and one on the year. They're eight and zero in single digit games at home. It is not doom and gloom. Obviously, you don't want to get swept. Losing to USC is not a good look, but there are enough opportunities less for the, left for this team to find good wins and get themselves on track. Uh, and, you know, hosting Arizona and Arizona State, there's no better opportunity, which is what Tad Boyle likes to talk about. Opportunity, there's none better, even if you get swept, to going home to have those two games. Um, I'm going to take a little bit of a different perspective on this, and I'll say that, yes, it is doom and gloom for, one of the for two of the following reasons. One, losing to USC does not signify to me that we're going to win the games at home that we need to. You might get Arizona State, but if you lose to USC, you're probably going to need Arizona also. And number two, 
we need the confidence that this team can win a road game. And if you lose to USC, I'm not sure they're going to have the confidence on the road in the last three at the end of the year. Yep. Teams always lose games and then go that don't give you confidence and then go on and beat teams. Colorado had lost three of four or, and five of eight, I think, going into the Pac-12 tournament two years ago, and then they rattle off to win the entire thing. I mean, yes, it, it doesn't inspire confidence, but in the scheme of things, it doesn't matter. Just like them playing well in this homestand really doesn't matter for them going on the road. To me, it is a bit of doom because all of a sudden, the the chance of them finishing the season 0-7 is real. It's really real. It's real whether they lose, whether they get... I mean, obviously, if they win one, you can't finish 0-7. <laughs> yeah, what? But if they split, they have just as good of a chance to finish 1-6 as they do 3-4. and four. Personally, I just think if you lose to USC... I think they're going to lose to ASU. Then they're going to. I just think it's one of those. I, I feel like that's a snowball game that can that could really hurt them. I, I, I don't know. It's just yeah, I, I agree 100. I think it's what we've we've these last three games we've won to keep our season alive. I think that USC game is a very similar game in that regard. We're we're keeping our tournament hopes alive here, and uh, it, w- without USC. I, I think I think the confidence maybe that we are still on the right side of the bubble kind of disappears. I could see it. I mean, obviously, I don't want. I don't. Hopefully, they can bounce back from it. That's what you would like to see, obviously. But I'm not sure we have enough leadership and talent right now to overcome that kind of loss and rebound to finish the year. Okay, so before we finish on a, on a note like that, talking about getting swept to UCLA and, and USC, final question of, of the. Of the show, Jerron Hopkins comes down the lane at the at midway through the, the second half of last game and just throws the hammer down yes, on CJ Wilcox. I mean, I, we we there isn't too much reaction that goes on in the media section over there. It's a it's a professional media section not cheering. There was a there was a, a rumble that went through that that I mean everyone had their hands over their face. That was a bang. I want to know from you two, and I'll chime in too. That's the best dunk at the Coors Event Center since what? Tyler, we'll start with you. We talked about this a little bit before, and I have to agree that Andre Andre over Jordan Baczynski is the one that really sticks out in your mind. And without rattling off too much, I I would say that back in the day, I'm dating myself over here, the Richard Roby dunk in the lane over Kansas, and that must have been 2007, maybe? Where he dunks over Sasha Khan and Julian Wright, I think that that was that was two of the best that I've seen. I, I left a couple there for you. Yeah, I mean, Jay Jay Hop's dunk was the best since Andre Robertson two years ago. Threw down, threw down over Jordan Pachinski. Catches it on the left baseline. It was one of the prettiest penetration moves Andre's ever had. <laughs> it, direct rip through, one dribble into the lane. Rises it up, throws it down over him, and gives him a few words of smack talk, backing up on his way down the court. It's the best one since then. I, I think I I give it I, I can't give it the edge over that one. And of course, I mean Shannon Sharp. Mm. I mean, what more needs to be said? The off the rim, cocking it back to his lower back, throw down over Cal in the NIT. I mean, that's it's one of the more spectacular dunks you will see in college basketball ever. And so, you know, that it's the best since then. Carlin Brown had a couple really nice ones, but they weren't posters like this one. You know, and even 
for the moment. Xavier Johnson's dunked the first points of CU's game against Kansas. <coughs> Going right down the paint was great. It wasn't as athletic and as big time as this. But CU's had some good ones. If I was going to make an argument to try and say that uh, Jay Hops w- was the best of any of we talk here, I would say Andres, he, he threw it in. He, he didn't get rim on that. That's a Blake Griffin dunk. And Shannon Everybody likes Blake Griffin dunks. Let's just throw that out. And Shannon ruined his with the celebration afterwards. <laughs> he had a lot of. He had a lot of. No. That one's the best. I love it. But I, I wasn't a fan of the celebration. So, regardless, his dunk was way nastier. Yeah, it was up there. I will. I will say I'm going to throw. Corey Higgins had two that I can remember off the top of my head that really deserve some mention because because he wasn't that guy who went into the lane and dunked. You know, so whenever he did it. And he, he would always go with authority when he decided to get it down. And I remember he, he came across the right the right um, side of the block and just threw it, kind of like cocked it over to his right, back over to his left. Uh, I don't remember who it was against, though. It, it, he, Corey had a couple really nice ones that people forget about. I think, and this is indisputable, the best finesse or trick dunk is against uh, Idaho State. The first game yes. of the Tad Boyle yes. era, the first points of the Tad Boyle era, Alec Burks gets into a passing lane as he did so often and throws down the reverse 180 windmill that w- was on posters uh, all over the Coors Event Center that year. And with that, that's going to do it for us here on, on Buff Stampede Radio from the Blake Street Tavern. I'm um, going to wrap up my uh, green chili fries and, yep. and head on home. So thanks for Got listening it. and uh, Get on over to the Buff Stampede message boards and and follow along with us as uh, the Buffs close out this season.